You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom by Oz Guinness, published May 11th. 2021 by Blackstone Publishing. Publisher's summary at audible.com, and I quote, In these stormy times, loud voices from all fronts call for revolution and change. But what kind of revolution brings true freedom to both society and the human soul? Cultural observer Oz Guinness explores the nature of revolutionary faith contrasting between secular revolutions, such as the French Revolution, and the faith-led revolution of ancient Israel. He argues that the story of Exodus is the highest, richest, and deepest vision for freedom in human history. It serves as the master story of human freedom and provides the greatest sustained critique of the abuse of power. His contrast between Paris and Sinai offers a framework for discerning between two kinds of revolution and their different views of human nature, equality, and liberty. Drawing on the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, Guinness develops Exodus as the Magna Carta of humanity with a constructive vision of a morally responsible society of independent free people who are covenanted to each other and to justice, peace, stability, and the common good of the community. This is the model from the past that charts our path to the future. Quote, there are two revolutionary faiths bidding to take the world forward, Guinness writes. There is no choice facing America and the West that is more urgent and consequential than the choice between Sinai and Paris. Will the coming generation return to faith in God and to humility, or continue to trust in the all-sufficiency of enlightenment, reason, punditry, and technocracy? Will its politics be led by principles or by power? While Guinness cannot predict our ultimate fate, he warns that we must recognize the crisis of our time and debate the issues openly. As individuals and as a people, we must choose between the revolutions, between faith in God and faith in reason alone between freedom and despotism, and between life and death. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, yours truly, Garrett Ashley Mullet. My middle name is Ashley. First name, Garrett. Last name, can you guess? Mullet. With one T, by the way, not two Ts. I just finished up the Magna Carta of Humanity yesterday, And today, I was almost finished with it yesterday, had a little bit left to go this morning, and my newborn son, Andrew Mathias, helped me to finish it up, listened to it with me. Hopefully he got something out of it. He is today, by the way, as of about 10 minutes ago, four weeks old and doing well. Thank you. I don't know how much he got out of it, honestly, but I think I got 
a fair amount. I wouldn't give this one the highest of marks, in part because I'm still trying to turn it over in my head. I'm still trying to make sense of what Guinness is saying in some. And I'm not familiar with Guinness firsthand. I haven't read anything else by Oz Guinness except the quotes that make it into a lot of other books that I read. Oz Guinness is kind of like de Tocqueville in that so many quote him, and yet I'm only just now reading him firsthand. But he is very smart and very graceful in his communicating what it is that he thinks, pulling things together, pulling on various threads. There's a lot of threads to pull on with regards to the biblical narrative, with regards to the Exodus, God delivering his people out of 400 years of hard bondage and slavery in Egypt, trying to bring them into the promised land and succeeding, but also in some sense working with the will of fallible, sinful, fallen man. It's interesting that God could have overridden the will of the children of Israel, and yet when they get to the outskirts of the promised land and 12 spies are sent into the land to scope it out, 10 of the 12 come back saying, we cannot take this land. The giants who live in the land are very strong. They have very fortified cities. They are too strong for us. We can't do it. The people of Israel, the whole assembly of Israel, grumbles against Moses and Aaron and God for having brought them out of Egypt into the desert to die. And they are resolved to maybe go back. Maybe we should just go back to Egypt. Maybe Pharaoh would take us back. But there is no going back. And the curious thing that is explored in Guinness's work here is that even though they want to go back and they're not spiritually ripe to inherit this promised land, this is this exceedingly good land that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants forever, even though that generation of adults is not spiritually fit to inherit the promised land, God is not going to give up. He is going to free his people. He's going to give them this good land. He pronounces judgment on that generation, and they wander in the desert for 40 years until all of that generation has passed away with the exception of the two spies who came back giving a good report. And by good report, we have to understand not just a material report, not just here are the stats, not just here are the physical dimensions of our enemies and their fortifications, here are their positions, here's how fortified they are, here's how well supplied they are. No, the two spies factor in what the other ten do not and what the whole host of Israel does not. The two spies factor in the fact that God has delivered them 
out of Pharaoh's hand. God has brought them here. God has fed them. He has protected them. He has provided for them. He has promised them this land. And if God has brought them this far, who could doubt God's ability to bring them the rest of the way into the fullness of what he has told them he has for them? So there's liberty that God is offering to Israel, even in the law, even in the giving of all of these commands and these restrictions and thou shalts and those thou shalt nots as well. There's liberty because the law is king. You know, one really, really interesting, and just this gives you a little bit of an example of why I am turning Os Guinness over in my head like a Rubik's Cube. I feel like I've just read the book equivalent of a Rubik's Cube in the Magna Carta of Humanity. But he posits that Israel was not a theocracy. It was not a rule of the priests and the priesthood and the clerics and the clergy. It was a rule of law. It was, in some sense, a republic, a nation ruled by laws and not by men, first and foremost. And yet, he highlights some things that are very thought-provoking, that make me want to reevaluate a lot of the assumptions I've had with regards to the Old Testament, the biblical narrative, our political situation now, as he goes back and forth and does the compare and contrast thing between not just the American Revolution and the French Revolution, but the revolution at Sinai, if you will, which inspired in large measure, as he tells it, the American Revolution. Comparing and contrasting that against the French, French Revolution. It's a, it's a fascinating premise. It really is. We're quick to think 1776 and 1793, America and France. Certainly that's where Alexis de Tocqueville goes, or at least that's how I read him. And him being French as he is, being so much more familiar with how France is doing in its fourth decade post-reign of terror, post-abolition of the monarchy. He thinks of America in contrast to France. But it's interesting to look at Oz Guinness's take on the French Revolution and the other 20th century revolutions that were inspired by the French Revolution to compare those against God's revolution in Exodus and even to think of the Exodus as a revolution. Have you thought of Exodus and God delivering his people out of hard bondage, 400 years of hard bondage in Egypt? Have you thought of that as a revolution? Have you thought of that as liberation? It makes a lot of sense when you really think about it. And there's a lot of talk, Old Testament and New Testament, about freedom 
and slavery. There's a lot of talk about whether or not we're going to be slaves to sin or to righteousness, whether we're going to be slaves to one another or slaves to God. Old Testament and New Testament, we are described, if we are God's people, we are described as slaves to righteousness and slaves to God. And yet, the kind of slavery that we want is a slavery to goodness, to life, to the God who created life, to the God of truth and justice and goodness. Who wouldn't want to be a slave to that? Well, the frank answer is a whole lot of people don't want to be a slave to that. And they think that the contrast is between being a slave to all that or being free and unfettered. But it's not. Would you say that people living through the reign of terror during the French Revolution, the early republic, would you say that they were free and unfettered? Or were a great many of them, like hunted animals, worried that the revolution might turn on them at any moment? They might be accused and hauled before a tribunal. And it might not matter what the material evidence was of their innocence or their guilt, so long as they stood accused, so long as the will of the people had spoken they might find themselves introduced to Madame Guillotine having to bow and pay homage. And by contrast, when God says up front, here are the expectations, here is the covenant between you and me that I am making. I am making this covenant. I am binding you to it. You know the terms on the front end. You know not only what is expected of you, but what you can expect from God. And God does not change. We read that, Old Testament and New Testament. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Also, God is not arbitrary, and he's not going to get the facts of your situation wrong. He's not unjust and capricious and cruel, He's slow to anger. Which would you rather? Would you rather be slaves to the French-style revolution, which elevates man's reason with all its warts, <laughs> warts and all, all its limitations, all of its potential cruelty and selfishness, potential sadism, the Marquis de Sade, was French, it's worth noting, and had a very similar worldview to the men who launched the French Revolution and the men who launched the imitation revolutions in Russia and China and many other places, as Guinness points out very artfully, very appropriately. God is not a sadist. He doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. We just talked about that in the last two episodes, Ezekiel chapter 33. God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In fact, he solemnly charges. He 
his messenger in Ezekiel chapter 33 to warn those who are headed for judgment. If you warn them and they ignore you, then their blood is on their own heads and you are guiltless. If I tell you that judgment is coming for them and you say nothing though, you silently, passively watch them go on to destruction. Yes, they will still be receiving the judgment for their own misdeeds, their own wickedness, but I will require their blood of you, which is to say their blood is on your hands. You're guilty. You're responsible. That's how much God wants repentance. And the revolution at Sinai is here are the expectations. And I'm going to make a covenant with all of the people, the whole of the people, not just a select few. And that's a common gripe and complaint about the men who signed America's founding documents. The left loves to complain. Oh, they were just straight white men, slave owners, a lot of them. What hypocrites. Wealthy, straight white men. Why didn't any of the women sign? How about any racial minorities? Why was it all white men? And yet, picture this, if you will. What if all of the people had signed those founding documents? Our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights. In some measure, the representative form of government, the hybridized representation that we have in America is inspired by the revolution at Sinai, as Os Guinness puts it. This needs to be a covenant that all of the people agree with. You pledge yourself in a great measure. That's what we're doing when we send representatives on our behalf to Washington, to our state capitol, to our city council. They are pledging on our behalf because it's not realistic. It's not reasonable for us all to go 300 to 400 million people converging. It's not realistic. That's chaos. I just got a notification right before I started recording this podcast, for instance, that the Pentagon has approved the sending out of the National Guard in preparation for this American Freedom Convoy trucker protest. The National Guard is being called out, and we don't even have the protest started. And oh, by the way, there was no violence that I saw. If there had been violence, surely we would have heard about it. The corporate media, the politicians, the establishment types have every motive in the world to put on blast any violence whatsoever on the part of the Canadian Freedom Convoy. I did see violence, but it was the police. It was Ottawa police being violent towards protesters. It was a horse trampling on a disabled woman's head. It was pushing and shoving and hitting and beating. I saw arrests made. I saw tear gas fired at protesters. 
I did not see the protesters in Canada's capital city being violent. I didn't see it. Surely we would have seen it if it had happened. And I think that's a large part of the motivation on the part of Americans and Canadians who, whether they know it, to whatever extent they realize it, they are inheritors of this Sinai revolution. The Pharaoh in Egypt was the freest man in Egypt, as Os Guinness tells it. Everything belonged to the Pharaoh. The children of Israel, the, deten- the descendants of uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, numbering in the millions, they were the slaves of Pharaoh. They belonged to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, as a god-king, led the most advanced nation on the face of the earth, the most powerful, wealthy, sophisticated nation on the face of the earth. And God's people were his slaves. And he was cruel and capricious and stubborn and arrogant. And what God did in delivering his people from hard bondage was highlight how Pharaoh actually was a slave to his own sinful nature. When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and I've said this for years, not quite with the eloquence of Guinness, but when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, he's just accelerating the timeline so as to make a clearer illustration for everyone else. Pharaoh is not going to let the children of Israel go anyways. But God wants it to be very clear for all the nations and for all time that he is stronger than the strongest king and potentate on earth. And more to the point, and I love that Guinness draws this out. It reminds me of Michael S. Heiser's Supernatural. God is demonstrating his power over the gods of Egypt. Pharaoh's court magicians are, in their day, the equivalent of the best scientists, the best technologists in our day. Or, perhaps putting it a different way, our scientists and technologists are the equivalent of the court magicians of ancient Egypt. And, wouldn't you know it, true to form, using that analogy, that comparison, what do we find when Christians say X, Y, or Z in our day? Secular scientists very often anthropomorphize science. They put a capital S at the front of the word science, very similar to how the French revolutionaries erected a cult of reason or tried to. You can say reason, you can say science. It's all the same, really. It's building a tower to the heavens. It is self-aggrandizing. It is Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive 
stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So says Percy Shelley. The French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Maoist Revolution, whatever you want to call what Trudeau is trying to do in Canada, what Biden and the Democrats are trying to do here in America, it will fail. Period. It will fail. And as they get more and more desperate to deny that reality, because that's where their heart is, that's where their treasure is, that's all that matters to them, we will see them more and more as slaves to their ambition, slaves to their passions, slaves to sin. And by contrast, God's people are slaves to God. And in that slavery is, counterintuitively for many, freedom. Imagine you're working for an employer. That's as close as we get in most of our conceptions to slavery. Not all of us. Some of us know what slavery is, but most of us don't really know, can't really quite conceive of slavery. So we have employment. Now, suppose you take a job and here are the terms. This is what you'll be paid. This is where you'll work. Here's your job description. Here's who you're going to work with. Here are the expectations. Here's your schedule. Now, you take the job. And you work for a time. And you become fairly proficient. But the terms are always changing. How do you feel when your pay is negotiated down from what it was when you took the job? How do you feel when your starting location, when your actual work location is changed from what it was when you took the job? How do you feel when your schedule changes from what it was when you took the job? How do you feel when your job description is literally changed and updated? And even the changed and updated job description is as nothing because things are constantly thrown on you, which are not at all even hinted at in the job description. But the job description is so broad and so vague, it could mean anything, it could be nothing. It's just a box checked on the part of your employer so that they can say, ah, yes, I was clear, but you weren't. You weren't clear. You left it open-ended, and you didn't say all that you intended and meant because you intended and meant to take advantage of me. This was my situation until recently, too recently, not long enough ago. It is not my situation where I am now, for which I am very thankful to the good Lord. And I credit God above for delivering me out of hard bondage. But that's 
a major difference between the revolution at Sinai, as Os Guinness tells it, and the revolution at Paris. In the case of Sinai, you have God saying, here are the terms, and they are fixed. This is not an adjustable rate. This is a fixed rate. Zero interest. How's that? And it's not even a loan. I'm giving this to you. It's a gift. I am the guarantor. It is mine to give, and I give it to you. Here is your reward for faithful service. But if you are faithless and you go whoring after the gods of Egypt or the gods of the surrounding nations, then these will be the consequences. And it's all up front. It is what anyone who's ever worked closely with someone fickle wishes for. Stop moving the target. Stop moving the goalposts. You ask me to do X, Y, and Z, and then I do it, and you punish me for it. You throw me under the bus. You despitefully use me. You ask me to rise to the occasion here. I do, and then you try to turn it into something not good, something to criticize. You don't ask me to do X, Y, and Z, but I go above and beyond, and there's no reward. In fact, you take that to mean you can negotiate my pay down, change my work location, change my schedule. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that to us. He didn't do it to the children of Israel. He doesn't do it to the church. He doesn't do it to his saints. He doesn't do it then. He doesn't do it now. He never will do it. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is fixed, immutable, unchanging. And when you govern yourself accordingly, when you govern your country accordingly, there is blessing with that. Have you ever heard, with regards to economics, that markets hate uncertainty? The one thing markets hate is uncertainty. And do you know why that is? It's because you can't make preparations. You can't make plans if the target is always moving. Unless you know where the target's going to move to, in which case, absolutely, you stand to make a killing. But that also is related to the kind of trouble that we find ourselves in right now. Whether we're talking about trust the science or trust in man's reason and in enlightenment type fashion, whether we're talking about trusting the experts, so-called, it's all the same. It's a rebranding of the same idea. It's a rebranding of the exact same impetus which drove the children of Israel to demand a king of their own because the surrounding nations had kings. The prophet Samuel is grieved, in part because this is no way to thank God for having delivered the people, in part because it's slavery. Israel is crying out for slavery, but also in part because he's been the guy leading. He's got all these sons, and they're not all 
behaved as they should be. And it's a little bit of a legacy project for him that things continue on as they are. And then the people cry out for a king of their own. Not God. A man. And this is another thing that Os Guinness highlights that I think is very interesting. And putting it succinctly, he says that the difference between God's people and all of the other peoples was that all of the other peoples had men as kings who were also gods for all intents and purposes. Whereas God's people had a king who was actually God or had a God who was actually their king. That's a major difference, particularly when you look at the attributes of God. You know, I read for you yesterday, Acts 17, 6 through 7. The Jews of Thessalonica, along with wicked men of the city, form a mob and do a kind of citizen's arrest of Jason. And they drag Jason and some of these new converts to Christianity before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. There's a world of difference. It is the difference between being right set up and upside down. Only this is the true king. This is the king of kings and the God of gods and the Lord of lords. That's the claim of Christianity. That's the revolutionary claim of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. To those who are upside down, they think we're upside down. To those who are perishing, what we preach is folly. And yet, this is the wisdom of God. That God uses the weak things to shame the strong. He uses things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. God will get representation. Now, whatever happens up in Canada for a time, we see the consequences of fallible man preferring an idol, preferring government as God. And what we always consistently throughout history see demonstrated over and over and over again is that when government is God, we find that government makes a very, very poor God. When it is unable to perform all that it promised, when the ambitious men are unable to perform all that they promised, they turn sour like overripe milk. They don't look quite so handsome and charming anymore. We start to see them for what they've been all along. Not all that glitters is gold, as we read in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Very often, bad things are made to look good by the enemy of God who wants to destroy us. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to make bad things look and sound really good. And in the end, 
It's death. It's an all-encompassing and pervasive and total death that comes from totalitarianism. This reckless pursuit of freedom in the abstract, based on man's reason, will always fail when it fails to take into account what is in the heart of man apart from God. We can't have life apart from the life giver. All we can have is death. We can't have freedom apart from our creator. All we will get is bondage and slavery and cruelty and oppression, a rotting away of everything. I think here too in America, you'll see protesters trying to imitate the tactics of the left and finding that it is a moving target. We act shocked, and yet we're dealing with people who, because they've rejected God's word, they also are very flippant when it comes to rejecting all truth claims, even truth claims they themselves have made in the past. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be consistent because the whole point is power. The whole point is, at the end of the day, they're in charge and they have the wealth and that's all wealth is, is power. And yet it all belongs to God and God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Even if the man is a prime minister or a president or a senator or a governor. See, that's the hidden hope, not very hidden but hidden just enough that we miss it when we're not looking for it. All those parables you read in the gospel accounts, Jesus comparing God the Father to a master, to a ruler. How does he engage with wicked servants? Then see what Paul writes in Romans 13. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, should be paired well with Romans 13. Like a fine wine with the right kind of meal, that wine tastes all the sweeter and the meal tastes all the more savory when you get the combination right. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So also, Romans 13 tells us that the governing authority is a minister of God to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil. When government as God acts in a satanic way to destroy those who do good because they remind Satan of the one against whom he rebelled long ago, God will see justice done. God will not be mocked. Now, I'm not saying we're going to see God do justice here in our time frame, even our lifetime. But God will see justice done. It's appointed once for a man to die, then comes the judgment. And that's really not that far in the too distant future. Not really. Oz Guinness's The Magna Carta of Humanity is well worth a read. I'm still chewing on it. There's a lot here. I will say I find it a little bit odd how often he refers to rabbis 
and whatnot. Not because I have anything against the Jews at all. I think he makes some very important points as far as the very Jewish nature of the Old Testament. Although I think sometimes we can get things misconstrued and think that what's special about the Jews is the Jews. What's special about the Jews is God, because God's special. So insofar as rabbis might have some insight, I don't think they have so much insight when so many of them have rejected the Messiah that we would want to be relying on them as heavily as Os Guinness does. Now, if they're born again, rabbis, by all means. But Christians have a tough road to hoe as far as our establishment leaders, our big name celebrity pastors in this day and age. I was reading a Twitter feed the other day that Owen Strachan liked from a repentant former evangelical elite. He said, don't get me wrong, I wasn't an elite in the sense that everybody knew my name, but I shared the sensibilities of the evangelical elite. And when he says that, what he means, and he unpacks this in the Twitter feed, what he meant was that he shared the sensibilities of the really popular big-name evangelical celebrities. Guys like Tim Keller, for instance. And he even says, Tim Keller was my guy. He says also, I looked down on Christians who didn't live in the city as though they were less spiritual, as though they were missing out on what God is doing. He says he moved his family to Los Angeles. And he was very grieved to hear the sensibilities of our so-called betters on the coasts, particularly on the West Coast in his case. And really what it all boiled down to was that this former evangelical elite had ambition. He was ambitious to be known, to be liked, to be popular, to be well-received, to be well-spoken of. And then comes this bad orange man in 2016, running for president, inciting the people to madness. Trump derangement syndrome, as it's often called. And all of a sudden, he's feeling profoundly conflicted because the people from back home and flyover country, as it's called, a lot of them well-meaning, sincere Christians, are making arguments for why we should vote for Trump and why Hillary Clinton is absolutely unacceptable. By no means can we vote for her or allow her to win without trying to vote for the other guy. And what he realized was that his own internal reaction against Trump had a lot to do with seeing years and years and years of his life's work trying to be well-liked, trying to be received by the world, trying to be celebrated by the world, trying to be accepted by the world as cool. Not like, you know, most Christians who are so uncool, who are so weird, who have these crazy ideas about where we come from, our nature, our problem, where we're going, how we should then live. Not like the weird Christians. No, 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 no. I'm a cool Christian. Yeah. Watch me make fun of Christianity to show you just how cool I am so that you'll want to be a Christian. 
I guess, kind of. And what this repentant evangelical elite came to realize is that his motives were bad, were corrupt, and selfish. So he moves out of L.A., moves his family back east, I think he said Georgia, to a smaller town. They get plugged into a smaller, humbler, more traditional church. And he says his perspective has totally changed on a lot of things he used to think were quaint and backwards, like preaching through books of the Bible, a verse at a time, like singing simple songs that are older than five minutes. His perspective has changed. I can attest to that as somebody who in my early 20s took my family to a seeker-friendly church in southern Ohio. I can attest to the attractiveness of church not as usual, and I quote. I think that's trademarked, actually. Could be. Maybe. Might as well be. Church, church not as usual. This is the church for people who hate church. And what will you get in the end? Good luck with that. Maybe what we need more of is church on God's terms. Not worshiping tradition and also not worshiping innovation, but worshiping God and revering his word and being a slave to God, not a slave to our passions or our ambitions or our fear of what men will say of us or do to us, not in terror of despots, totalitarians, and pretty boy tyrants, or doddering fools, corrupt career politicians who change the rules for their friends for money, who corrupt justice, who take bribes, who set brothers against one another, who seem to live their lives in the shadows based on the short list of things that God says he detests and doing those things as a matter of course and trying to approve of and reward others who do likewise. Maybe what we need more of is to be slaves to God because in that is freedom and only in that. In that is life and there's life nowhere else. Maybe what we need is culture. I love that Os Guinness draws attention to something I really hadn't put words to. It's bothered me, and then he said it out loud, and it's like, yes, that's it. That's it. That, that's what, that's, yes, that's the thing. But he talks about how our recent rediscovery of some of these great men from our past can be misleading because we're looking at George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, all of whom have had their statues torn down by radical leftists who just want to see the world burn because they can't control themselves, so they want to control you. But we shouldn't suppose that our fixating on great men of the past is the same thing as rediscovering the culture which honors God, not just in word, but in deed, in fact, in material ways, in spirit and in truth. 
How many books are you reading about the culture of the 18th century, which so much wanted to emulate the revolution at Sinai? Not perfectly. They didn't do it perfectly, but they tried, which is more than we can say for our day. I don't think that makes them hypocrites. I think that makes them human. What might make us hypocrites is when we don't even try. We don't even show up because we don't want to be like those sinners over there. We're just out-of-church Pharisees, a lot of us. I don't, I don't want to go to church. It's full of hypocrites. Well, yeah, but you can be a hypocrite out of church too. You know that, right? You, you think those hypocrites that you don't want to go to church with stop being hypocrites when they leave the church? When they go out to work, when they go to the grocery store, when they go back home again for the day? Yeah. Being out of church doesn't mean you're not a hypocrite. Think about it. You might be a compound hypocrite, actually. You're reacting to people who think they're so much better than everybody else in exactly the same way that you condemn them for exactly the same way. And you might not even know. Their imperfections might not be proof that God is dead, as Nietzsche said, and we killed him. It might be proof that we need more of God, not less. Certainly would be better than our wages being renegotiated time and time again, our currency being deflated or inflated at the will and whim of corrupt men, our trade policies changing based on what will profit them and their drug addict sons. In any event, I've said enough for this episode. Some things to chew on. I will highly recommend Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. I will even more highly recommend Democracy in America. Again, I did a podcast episode about that here, oh, a week or two ago. You should go back and check that out. Democracy in America by de Tocqueville, that is a book about the culture. And we need to be thinking in cultural terms, not just waiting for some great man to come along. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.